Please open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. This assembly and the one following, I want to deal with a subject that I've entitled Salvation Problem Text. What I mean by a, a problem text is a verse that appears on its surface to contradict what we believe about salvation. No matter what doctrine of salvation you choose to believe, there are a whole set of problem texts because the Bible is written in such a way that it requires dividing. Paul would not have told Timothy to rightly divide the word of truth unless there were divisions to make. The same word's going to be used in different senses and you have to be able to pull them apart and put them in their proper place with their proper sense. The Bible is not written as a child's book that is easily understood. The Bible requires work, and that's why the man of God is called a workman. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The Bible says about ministers, give thyself wholly to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Three things. And notice there are no administrative duties in those three things that most ministers waste their time doing. There's no weddings. There's no funerals. There's no visiting hospitals in those three things. Pastors may do those things from time to time. Godly pastors, most pastors do those things only and do very little reading, exhorting, and doctrine. And so there is a loss in their rightly dividing the word of truth. There are many different denominations that hold the Bible. They practice everything from eating God, the Catholic Church, to baptism for dead relatives, the Mormon Church. From denying marriage to men and women, priests and nuns, the Catholic Church, To British Israelism, that Anglo-Saxons are the only people of God on earth. The lost ten tribes of Israel. And on and on people go with a Bible. And that Bible is used against us sometimes and we want to be able to stand on the truth and today answer some problem texts about salvation. I want to use two verses here in 2 Peter 3 to introduce this subject. And let's, let's hear Peter's words and what he has to say about Paul's writings. Right. 2 Peter 3.15 And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Peter, an apostle, tells us in these two verses that there are things in the Word of God that are hard to be understood, and that unlearned and ignorant men looking for sound bites, 
run into these things that are hard to be understood and rest them, twist them, corrupt them, pervert them to their own destruction, just like they do the rest of the Scriptures. Not just what Peter and Paul wrote, not just what Paul wrote, but what all the men of God wrote. Unlearned and ignorant men get into the Word of God and come up with all sorts of things. A man named William Miller, a farmer, decided he'd lock himself away for a year and take a Bible. There was only a King James Bible back then. This is in the 1820s and 30s. And a concordance. I'm going to find the truth of God. He got himself into Daniel chapter 8, where it speaks of 2,300 days of God's judgment upon the nation of Israel. And he decided that 2,300 days should follow the day-year Bible prophecy rule, and that it began in 456 B.C., therefore 2,300 years later would be 1844. So for 20 years, William Miller and the Millerites told America that Jesus Christ was coming back to earth on a particular day in 1844. When that day arrived, the Millerites gathered themselves and stood on rooftops in various places. They had sold many of their assets, but the Lord didn't come. So he went back to his calculator. They didn't have them back then. He used his abacus. And he came up with six months later in 1844 and did it again. It was called the Great Disappointment. Not my words. The words of America and their words. And that is the beginning of the Seventh-day Adventists. Right there. William Miller, and along came Ellen Harmon, and a man named Joseph Bates. They added Seventh-day worship to this idea that Jesus came in 1844. Ellen Harmon, being the liar that she was, said that Jesus did come in 1844. He came and cleansed His sanctuary, and that is the Seventh-day Adventist to this day. And they're strong and one of the fastest-growing denominations in the world that claim to do anything with Jesus Christ. And where did they get all that? Out of Daniel chapter 8. Resting it to their own destruction. I'm not going to preach on the Seventh-day Adventists this morning. All I want to do is get your attention that many people use the Bible and use it to their own destruction because they're unlearned and they're ignorant. We are not claiming to be wise in the ways of men, nor are we claiming to be all that intelligent. We are thanking the God of heaven for showing us that the Bible is written in such a way that we better humble ourselves and pray for light and that we better study it and study it diligently. Because it is a book that if you go into it unlearned and ignorant, you're going to destroy yourself. God has raised up teachers, and I magnify the office, not the person in the office before you. I magnify the office. God has raised up men since the Apostle Paul and gave them ability and gave them a heart for it that they wanted to dive into these Scriptures and rightly divide them. And it's by using those teachers that men can hear the truth. Not by putting yourself in a closet with a concordance. God has never ordained that the way to be to find truth. What men are supposed to do with the Bible who are not put in the ministry is to go home and search the Scriptures and see if the things they have heard were true. And that's after they received them with a ready mind. That's Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. We are told what noble men do. William Miller wasn't noble and thought he would find the truth by diving into one of the more obscure places in the Bible and coming up with such a ridiculous interpretation that no one in the history of the world had ever held before. 
And it ruined a whole group of people that called themselves Millerites. That's right, they weren't Christians because they weren't following Christ, they were following William Miller. Father in heaven, you own all truth in the universe. You dispense it to whomever you will. We are nothing in the sight of the world and we are nothing in our own sight. I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. I pray that you would grant us all wisdom and that we would rightly divide the word of truth. That we would humble ourselves before its statements and that we would not be content with the sound bites that the world uses, but that we would strive for the sense and cause the people to understand the reading. Have mercy upon us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you that read Nehemiah chapter 8 last night or this morning, I hope that it was a blessing to you to read about the most carefully described preaching service in the whole Bible. Nehemiah chapter 8 tells us more about a true preaching service and what true preaching is in any other place. You say, well, what about 2 Timothy 4? Doesn't it say preach the Word? Yeah, but it doesn't tell us how to do it. It just says preach the Word. So how are we supposed to do it? Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra stood up with his helpers and they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused the people to understand the reading. That is Bible preaching. It's not storytelling. It's not jokes. It's not illustrations. It's not pantomimes. It's not music. It's reading distinctly, giving the sense, and causing men to understand the reading. And those wonderful people in Nehemiah chapter 8 held a party afterwards because they had understood the word of the Lord that was read to them. And that's what we want to do. We want to understand the word of the Lord that's been given to us. I, I hope you love Nehemiah 8. I shouldn't be spending any more time on it, but I'm going to take a few more seconds. What's a pulpit in Nehemiah chapter 8? A pulpit is something that the teacher stands on. It's not this thing that holds my Bible. A pulpit was something to get the man of God elevated so that when he opened the Bible, everyone could see the book that he was opening, that it was the precious word of God. And he blessed the Lord. And the people all stood there from morning until midday, 9 to 12. They weren't getting drinks. They weren't going to the bathroom. They weren't getting themselves graham crackers and milk. They stood, and it says they were attentive to the reading of God's Word. They were of one mind. It wasn't the preacher that called the people into the street. It was the people that called the preacher to come and preach to them, if you read that chapter. And when Ezra blessed the Lord, all the people said... Amen. 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 You know, in the New Testament, men said amen. So that when others came in, they heard all the confirmation throughout the assembly that they were united together in the doctrine coming out of the pulpit. We establish the truth by clear teaching, and then we reconcile all other verses to it. This is how we approach the Bible. We don't dive into the Bible and find ourselves a verse that says, Else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? Now, if we just dive into the Bible and say 31,172 verses aren't as important as this one, I like this one that I've just found, 1 Corinthians 15, 29, we could end up with baptism for the dead. Do you know how important that verse is to the Mormons? Do you know how terrible that verse was to me when I was a freshly ordained young Baptist preacher in Greenville when two of those 
white-shirted, blue-pants, navy-blue tie boys wandered into my garage. And my father was there, and I thought, I'm going to show my dad that I've learned a thing or two in my time. Come on in, come on in, boys. Let's talk about the Mormon faith. But they had a question for me. They said, do you practice the whole New Testament? You bet we do. I was licking my chops and rubbing my hands. I was going to have Mormons for lunch. They said, are you sure? Are you sure that you're practicing the whole New Testament? You bet we are. Come on, what do you want to lay on me? Well, let's, let me read you this verse. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? 1 Corinthians 15.29 Well, you might as well have electrocuted me. But you know, I thank God for that. You know why I thank God for that? He took out a chainsaw and cut me off at the knees. And then when I hit those stubs, he didn't think that was short enough. He cut me off at the waist. I did not know how to handle that verse. I can handle it today. And I love that verse today. There's no one alive that can handle 1 Corinthians 15, 29, but a Baptist preacher. The Presbyterians just get all choked up in 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Matthew Henry's the most popular Bible commentary in the world. And when it comes to 1 Corinthians 15, 29, he uses an entire page to give nine possible interpretations. And he gets to the conclusion of his nine possible interpretations. And he says, we don't know what it is. The only thing we can be sure of is the Corinthians understood him. Oh, bless your heart. And you get to sell that as a book? Explain the Bible? Do you know why he can't explain it? Because he sprinkles babies' foreheads. There's only, only Baptists can explain 1 Corinthians 15, 29 because baptism is a picture of burial and resurrection. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the resurrection of the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the resurrection of the dead? That's 1 Corinthians 15. That's the resurrection chapter of the Bible. All of that little exercise in 1 Corinthians 15.29 was to remind you that men diving into the Word of God and finding one verse and liking it sound end up in heresy. And we want the truth. So what we do is we, if we find a verse like that, we've got to reconcile it to every other verse in the Bible. And if you try to reconcile that one, you're going to find out you're not getting baptized to save dead relatives. How big is the Mormon church? Is it a pretty big denomination? Is it one of the top five fastest growing Christian denominations in the world? Oh, yes, it is. Do they have, do they have genealogical records buried in a nuclear proof vault in, in Utah for a reason? Yep. Why do they have the most extensive genealogical records? If you're doing a genealogical search on your family, you go to the U.S. Census and you go to the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. Do you know why they have those genealogical records? Because you have to prove that they are your relative before you get buried in their, un- before you get baptized in their underground baptistry in one of their temples by proxy for a dead relative. See, once you make the, once you take the position that Joe Smith and his baptism is necessary for eternal life, then all of your relatives that never got to meet Joey need to be baptized by someone in a Mormon temple. And so the average Mormon has been baptized over and over and over again by proxy for dead relatives. Now, whenever you see for the rest of your life that the Mormons have extensive genealogical records, I want you to understand why. 
It's because they ran into 1 Corinthians 15.29 and rested it to their own destruction. If anybody wants to know that's listening to this tape or anyone here or anyone else wants to know how we approach the Bible, there is a 75 to 100 page outline on the website entitled How to Read and Understand the Bible or otherwise entitled Knowing the Scriptures. And you're welcome to go through that and see hundreds of examples and case studies of how to study the Bible and the rules that we follow in studying Scripture. God has taught us these rules from the pages of Scripture. We haven't learned them in a seminary. What I want to do right now is show you and establish to you very quickly that we believe in eternal life is an unconditional gift of God by His grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We have visitors with us this morning, and this sermon is not for those visitors. They're welcome to listen to it, and if they profit from it, I am most thankful. But I am not preaching at them, and I do not want them to feel that way at all. This is for all of you to remember how we handle the Bible. So that when you are confronted with people carrying a Bible and say, I'm a Bible believer... I want you to take each verse apart in a proper way and read it and find the sense if you can. And if you can't, I'll help you find it. And if I can't, the Lord will help us find it. But let's remind ourselves very quickly that eternal life is an unconditional gift by God's grace and His will that was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. First, the Bible tells us man is unable to obey or please God. If you're unable to obey or please God, then you can't be given conditions in order to get life. The Bible tells us that in numerous places. But in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, it says that the carnal mind is enmity against the law of God and is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Romans 8, 7 and 8. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. If you have a man in the flesh, there is no way he can please God. If you're going to give him conditions in order to get eternal life, then he's going to have to get eternal life by displeasing God. Because he cannot please God. The Bible tells us the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary the one to another so that you cannot do the things that you would. Galatians 5.17 Now, there's 20 or 30 Bible verses on this point, and you should go look at our document, Seven Proofs of Unconditional Salvation, to remind yourself of all the verses. I'm done. First point is, man is unable to obey or please God for salvation because that's where the Bible leaves him. He is dead in trespasses and sins, just like God promised Adam in the Garden of Eden. Proof number two, God denies man's will or works. The Bible says in John 1.13 that we become the children of God by being born again. Not of the will of the flesh. That means the flesh does not make a choice to get born again. Not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Parents can't take children and help get them born again. But of God. It is not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. The Bible says in Romans chapter 9 and verse 15, I will have mercy... On whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion. On whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Romans 9, 15 and 16. You do not choose to get the mercy of God. You do not choose to get the compassion of God. God makes that choice, and our will and works are cut out of it altogether. It's according to the good pleasure of His will. 
Ephesians 1, 5 and 11. That's proof number two. God denies man's will or works in eternal life. Number three, faith and good works are the result of salvation, not the condition for it. Faith and good works result from salvation by God giving us that new man and regenerating us. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God has to create us anew before we will have the good works that show salvation. You can't put the good works as the condition for getting saved because the good works are the result of being saved. Work out your own salvation. It says in Philippians 2.12, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. If you ever do the good pleasure of God, it's because God worked it in you. Philippians 2.13. There's proof number three. Faith and works are the result of salvation, not the conditions for it. Number four. Jesus Christ saves the elect by Himself. He doesn't have partners. There's no soul winning partners with the Lord Jesus Christ. None at all. Romans chapter 5 and verse 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Romans 5.19 One man's disobedience made us sinners. Who's the one man? Adam. Adam. You mean Adam sinned and it made us all sinners? For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. You bet. Let me ask you a few questions. What if you never heard about Adam? Would Adam's sin still make you a sinner? What if you didn't believe there ever was an Adam? Would Adam's sin still make you a sinner? What if you hated the doctrine of original sin and total depravity? Would that free you from being a sinner? Could you say, well, I won't accept it? You're still a sinner. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Adam was our first representative before God, and he sinned and made us all sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ is the representative of his elect, and his obedience made them all righteous. It is that simple. The doctrine of salvation in the Bible is that simple. There are two Adams in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15.22 puts it this way, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And how do we get into Jesus Christ? Election by being chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Salvation is entirely by Him. In our Bibles, Hebrews 1.3 said, When He had by Himself purged our sins. Of course, all the new versions take out the words by Himself. And so it's relieved. It's taken out of Hebrews 1.3. But we know that we were purged from our sins by Himself. Jesus Christ. That's number four. Number five, the gospel and ordinances do not give life. You know, Galatians 3.21 tells us something interesting. If there, if there could have been a law given, which could have given life, eternal life should have been by the law. But do you know what? There was no law given that man could keep to get eternal life. So God didn't make it conditional. He unconditional. And the gospel and the ordinances were not designed to bring eternal life. Baptism that we're going to see here in a few hours is not to get eternal life. It's because a person's been given eternal life. They want to be baptized. They believe, then they're baptized. The Lord's Supper? We don't take the Lord's Supper to get the Lord Jesus Christ. We take the Lord's Supper to remember the Lord Jesus Christ who's already gotten us. 
The, the gospel and the ordinances were never intended by God to bring eternal life. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. He didn't say, make sheep. He didn't say, convert goats to sheep. He said, feed my sheep. Jesus Christ is in the sheep making business. Amen. The Lord God chose us as His sheep before the world began, and all Peter was supposed to do was feed them. The Bible tells me that my job description in Ephesians 4 is to perfect the saints. I don't make saints. God makes saints. I simply work for their perfection to help present them to God in a converted, upright way that they're living godly and holy lives that are pleasing to our Father. can't make saints. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can do that through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes a saint. Number six, unconditional salvation is illustrated in the Bible. We've got John the Baptist leaping for joy in his mother's womb. We've got Cornelius the Italian already fearing God, giving alms and praying to God always before he ever met Peter. We've got the group of Israelites that were killed in the wilderness as eating and drinking of Christ in 1 Corinthians 10. Whoa! You mean they were disobedient and God overthrew them in the wilderness? Yes. They were disobedient and did not realize God's best for their life, but they were God's children. They were His nation. That was His church. Are you meaning to tell me that His church didn't have a single saved person in it? Not a single one? No, that passage is describing His church being disobedient and God overthrew them in the wilderness. We've got a group of people in Romans chapter 11 and we don't need to explain the whole passage to understand that it says that they are enemies of the gospel but beloved for the Father's sakes and in the election. In Romans 11.28. Those are people, those are just a few examples of those that are saved in the Bible without fulfilling any conditions. This doctrine glorifies God. This is point proof number seven, that eternal life is an unconditional gift by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, because it's the only one that gives all the glory to God. I want to tell you, go ahead and lay up any other doctrine of salvation make it the Mormon doctrine, then it's going to give all the glory to Joe Smith. Because unless you have a Joe Smith baptism, you can't get there. But I'll tell you, no one's going to get to heaven and give credit to anyone else for being there except to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none of their name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine that gives all the glory to God. If I have to invite Jesus into my heart in order to be saved, that gives me the glory instead of Jesus Christ. And it's this simple. Don't be upset. I was taught that way. I believed that for a long time. If that's true, then those in hell, Jesus Christ died as much for their sins as those in heaven. He's a worthless Savior. He didn't save anyone. He didn't put any sins away. Because those that He died for are in hell. Those same people believe that God loves everyone equally. Well, what good is the love of God if it doesn't do any good for someone? Because those in hell were loved just as much by God as those in heaven. They say, well, it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but they believe the Holy Spirit convicts everyone. Then the Holy Spirit has no power. He couldn't get anyone there. It was me. I made the choice. And I can't wait to get there and tell so-and-so who took me to a rock inn where I could be locked in with Jesus and get to heaven. No one's going to go to heaven and do anything like that. They're going to give Jesus Christ all the glory Amen. because this doctrine of salvation gives Him all the glory. Right. And, and it results in the greatest measure of motivation for good works. Yes. If 
I am saved because I know of a certain time when I invited Jesus into my heart and I wrote that date down and my parents confirm it, then I can live any way I want because of this foolish little statement that they've made up. Once saved, always saved. I will preach on that in the next couple of weeks, the Lord willing. Once saved, always saved. What they mean by that is, once I invited Jesus into my heart, it don't matter how I live, I've guaranteed myself in heaven and I got my name written down in the book of life. They don't even know what salvation is, let alone to explain that it's still lasting. Now, we believe in the eternal security of all of God's elect. We believe that God will preserve every one of His elect and not a single one of them will be lost. But we're not basing that on some little human decision that gives the glory to man and takes away all the motivation to live a holy life. There's the seven proofs of unconditional salvation. There are seven whole categories, and each one of those have 20 or 30 verses that are very plain and are in an outline for you to understand. On the website, there's seven proofs that eternal life is an unconditional gift by the grace of God to people He chose beforehand that He would save eternally. Thank You, Lord, and we praise and exalt and bless Your glorious grace in Christ Jesus. After we learn that, after we learn that, then we look in the Bible and we see the word saved used in all these different ways, and that's where we need to rightly divide the word of truth. So we come up with five phases of salvation, because when we look at the Bible, even if we were to ask the simple question, when were you saved, to the Apostle Paul? If we ask Paul, when were you saved, Paul? Paul would say, 2 Timothy 1.9, I was saved before the world began. Because this is what he wrote in a private letter to Timothy. Who hath saved us, that's past tense saving, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So you know one of these soul winners or evangelists that would say, when were you saved, Paul? He would say before the world began. That's one sense of salvation because Paul used the sense saved in that sense. Paul used the word saved in that sense. But then if we look a little further, we read this in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And the Bible says that on the cross in John 19.30, He cried out, It is finished. So Paul would say, I was saved when Jesus died on the cross. Well, if we read a little further, we would come to Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 where Paul would write Titus this time and he would say, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So there's the Holy Spirit involved in Paul's salvation and that would have been sometime during Paul's life when he was washed by the waters of regeneration, not baptism, the Holy Spirit. That's also called the waters in the Bible, John 7 and verse 39. So there's three phases of salvation. God the Father elected Paul before the world began. Jesus Christ died for him on the cross and paid the legal price. And the Holy Spirit regenerated him, giving him a vitality inside him of a new man. But Paul's not done. Paul then is going to say, but I'm still trying to be saved. 1 Timothy 4.16, he writes to Timothy and he says... Take heed unto thyself. Timothy, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, those two things, so that you might save yourself and them that hear thee. 
There's the word save again. I'm not making these verses up. There's the word save. Paul's telling... Did Paul ordain a saved man or an unsaved man? You better say, what sense do you mean? Or we're in trouble, right? If we mean elect, y'all say yes. If we mean justified by Jesus on the cross, yes. If we mean regenerated, absolutely. Did Paul know when a man was regenerated or not? Absolutely. Could he tell... Could, could those apostles discern spirits and look at a man and say, Thou art in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Thou child of the devil. Were they able to do that to men? Amen. Yes. Did Paul write in Philippians chapter 4 that he knew certain of his fellow laborers had their names written in heaven? Yes. Paul knew the book of life. By the works in the lives of some men so that he knew who was elect and who wasn't. But notice what he says to Timothy. Continue in these two things of taking heed to yourself and to the doctrine... For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. There is a way to save yourself. And what is that but the fourth phase of salvation, the practical phase of being converted? Conversion is that change from one lifestyle to God's lifestyle. And that is a, that is a work that we're engaged in the rest of our lives. It's an educational process of learning all that we can about the will of God and conforming our lives to that will. Those are verses like Romans chapter 12 that tell us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's something we do by humbling ourselves to the Word of God and turning more closely to Scripture in following God. And Paul and Timothy were still trying to be saved that way. Timothy, if you don't take heed to the doctrine and keep your life clean, you're not going to be saved because you're going to fall away from the true standard of godliness and so will your church. And this is what's happened to most churches. The pastor gets lazy in taking care of himself, his own personal life, or he gets lazy in the doctrine, and that church goes down the tubes. They don't lose their eternal life. You can't get your name out of the book of life. But they can lose God's best for them in this life, and they can end up in error. Where do you think all these Millerites and others came from? They came from pastors that weren't strong enough to put heresy down when it got started. Number five, you know what Paul said in Romans chapter 13, verse 11? He said, now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Do you know know what that means? Paul wasn't saved yet. That's another sense of salvation. That's glorification. That's what God was going to do for Paul when he came for him and took him into heaven and glorified him. So there's five phases of salvation. They're so plain in the New Testament. And if you don't divide the word saved, you are going to be in trouble. I will put you, I'll put a hurting on you with a Bible. And not because I'm smart. It's because the Bible's there and you're not very bright. You're going into the Bible and just grabbing the word save and liking it sound and thinking that every time you find the word saved, it has to do with eternal life when it has to do with different things. Sometimes it's election. Sometimes it's justification. Sometimes it's regeneration. Sometimes it's conversion. Sometimes it's glorification in heaven. This is how we study the Bible. This is why we believe that eternal life is an unconditional gift by God through His grace and will through Jesus Christ. Brethren, there's a threat. From the very beginning, the devil has tried to overthrow the truth by changing God's words. When Jesus Christ faced the devil in the wilderness after His baptism, did the devil use Scripture against Him? Yes, He did. Did He quote it correctly? Did He use the King James Bible? Yes, I hope you understand what I mean by that. Did the devil know to use the King James Bible? Yes, he knew the Lord would have accepted any other version. He quoted Psalm 91 correctly. 
He quoted a promise from Psalm 91 that is, God will give His angels charge over thee so that if you fall, they'll bear you up so that you won't dash your foot against a stone. The devil quoted the Bible. That's a problem text. The devil was throwing something at Jesus Christ from the Bible to try to get Him to do something He shouldn't do. What did the Lord Jesus Christ answer? It is written. He took another place in the Bible and said this place in the Bible overrules that place in the Bible. He took another place and said, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I can go down from this rooftop by the stairs, by the fire escape. I don't have to jump off. To jump off and not use the means God's given me would be to tempt the Lord my God. And it is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Therefore, the problem text you're throwing at me is no problem at all. But I want you to notice, even the devil uses the Bible in trying to overthrow the truth of God's elect. Paul declared that there were many in his day that corrupted Scripture. Peter wrote that many rest the Scriptures as we have read here in 2 Peter chapter 3. Paul warned that the last days would be full of Christian teachers that were creeps. They would creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins by their false teaching. The time would come when they would not endure sound doctrine, but would turn their ears away from hearing the truth and be turned unto fables. The Bible is written in such a way to confuse men if we don't approach it properly and carefully and wisely. Why did Jesus speak in parables? Just, just think for a minute. Why did Jesus speak in parables? You know, I was, I was taught many, many times that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning to make it easy for the common man to understand. Matthew 13, do you know what a parable is? Just forget the Bible parable, just the word parable. The word parable is an extended proverb. It is a difficult and obscure use of language. It is not a plain state. A parable is a riddle. A parable is something hard to figure out. A proverb is called a dark saying. Those little short statements in the book of Proverbs are not all that simple. Those are little dark sayings and to get the full sense out of them takes some work. Jesus told us why He spoke in parables. Matthew chapter 13, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Don't you know that they're not understanding what you're saying? This is Matthew 13.10. This is what the Bible says, not what Sunday school teachers say. Sunday school teachers do not know what they're saying, and they are unlearned and ignorant, and they're resting the Scriptures to say that parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings to make it easy for the common man to understand. The disciples knew better than that. They said, why, Lord, are you speaking to them in parables? They're not understanding you. He said, because it is not given to them to understand. I do not want them to understand so that I will have to convert them. Now you say, that is the harshest language I've ever heard from any pulpit anywhere. I didn't write that. I didn't say that. That's Matthew 13, 10 through 17. Jesus spoke in parables to hide the truth from people. Then he turned to his disciples and he said, let me explain to you the parable of the sower. And then he explained the parable of the sower to us. You say, well, why why wouldn't he want people to know the truth? Because that rebellious generation of Jews had already turned their back on the prophets and the reading of the scriptures and he was most justified and holy and righteous in all that he did in keeping them from understanding him. They did not deserve the truth. They had turned their back on it. Do you know what that means about us? We had better not turn our back on any truth or God can close our eyes and blind us and we might be baptizing for the dead two years from now. You say it's impossible. There is nothing impossible when you rebel against the Word of God. 
It should be terribly frightening to us. We should tremble before the Word of God. Jesus had to deal with problem texts being thrown at him. In Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, We know that you know, I'm paraphrasing it to help you understand, we know that you know that we believe in divorce for every cause. But we've got a Bible verse on our side. It's Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, because Moses gave us a provision for divorce. And Jesus said, "Uh, you didn't read the whole Old Testament. You're just grabbing the verse that you want. But from the beginning it was not so. And then he starts quoting Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, and he shows that their use of the Bible was not accurate. Jesus himself had to face problem texts. Jesus admitted there were problem texts by answering the Pharisees the way that he did. Who were the Pharisees? They were the graduates of Bob Jones University. They were the most conservative of the fundamentalist sects of the Jews' religion. Paul would later say, who was a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee, that the Pharisees were the straightest sect of the Jews' religion. They were the strictest. Straight, S-T-R-A-I-T, means straight like a straight jacket. Not straight like the shortest distance between two points, A and B. Straight is conservative, strict. The Pharisees were very strict. The Sadducees were the liberals. But they were both the seminary-trained preachers in God's nation of Israel. And Jesus had to deal with them, and they threw problem texts at Him. And He answered them with the Word of God. They tried to overthrow Him on divorce, and He answered them with Scripture. They tried to overthrow Him in Matthew 22, and some of you read that last night, where the Sadducees came and said, Moses said that if a man die and doesn't leave any children through his wife, that the brother should take the wife. Well, we know about seven brothers that had the same wife. Now, what is, whose wife is she going to be in heaven? Now, all of that was a problem text thrown up to try to overthrow the Lord Jesus Christ because Sadducees did not believe in a human spirit. All we are is bodies. And they did not believe in a resurrection of the body. And so they're making up this story to make heaven look stupid. To make Jesus look stupid. And he said, ye do err. Not knowing the Scriptures. Amen. You don't know what you're talking about. You've gone in and pulled out one little text that has nothing to do with the Spirit or the resurrection. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Amen. going to tell you, when Jesus Christ speaks, no man spake like Him. Right. Oh, Lord, if He could give me 1%, Lord, I'd thank You for eternity. 1% of the Lord Jesus Christ, because He always could shut their mouths so fast. And He shut their mouths on this case. He said, "Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures. Because those in the resurrection are just like the angels in heaven. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. In that, He just took them apart right there. And He said, well, since you wanted to bring up the subject of resurrection, let me lay one on you. He said, have you ever read in your Bibles where God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yeah. Where is it written? I'm, I'm adding a little bit to help you understand. I'm giving the sense. They said, well, God said that to Moses 400 years after Abraham. You're right. That's Exodus 3.14. Good job there. Quote, Bible quoting said, you see. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 400 years after Abraham died. I am the God of Abraham. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus Christ said to those Sadducees. The people were astonished, the Bible tells us in Matthew 22, because He had shut the mouths of those men that had PhDs, DDs, LLDs, and other Ds after their names. He shut their mouths. Even though they threw Scripture at him, he took them apart with Scripture. 
They came to take him apart with a woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8. And they said, Moses said this woman should die. We don't know what he wrote on the ground. He could have written, where is the man? He also could have written the verse from the Old Testament that says, the adulterer and the adulteress should be put to death. If they caught her in the very act, where was the man? Probably one of them. He handled problem text well. The Bible says, I want to say this, and I say this, I love every single one of you, and you should know that, even if I do say some of the things I do about my announcement. If you think you're grieving, you're grieving half as much as I am, but I don't know how to make announcements except to make them bluntly. Oh, I'm going to start writing them to you so that somebody can proofread it before I send it out. I want to say something to you. If you were to ever meet a seminary-trained Jesuit who knew his Bible, he could take you apart. He could make you believe, unless you had very strong faith and could put up a great, put up a wall and not listen to him, he could convince you that when you take communion, you are eating the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. They have trained for 2,000 years, I'm exaggerating a little bit, 1,500 years, to be able to take a Bible and prove that you are eating God. You would be amazed at what they're able to do with the Bible. They would take you to where Jesus said, this is my body. They would say, Paul quoted that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is my body. They would take you to John chapter 6 where Jesus said, except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, ye have no life in you. I hear the chainsaw starting up. I'm telling you the truth. There's problem texts that are difficult to deal with, but we can deal with them. Jesus said, this is my body. As that little 17-year-old Queen of England said, he also said, I am the door. What's her little name? I forgot it for the moment. It's not in the... What? Jane. Lady Jane. She got to be the Queen of England for about seven days until Bloody Mary had her killed. She was 17 years old. When she, she, she had a father confessor come into her repeatedly and saying, if you will admit that the host of the Catholic Church is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, you can be spared. She said that. She said she, she was rather plain. She said that if uh, anything you put in here comes out somewhere else, and that is not my Jesus Christ. And she said, he also said, I am the door. Does that mean he has hinges and a knob? And she lost her life for it. She stood up against it. Do you know how many verses in the Bible sound like salvation is by baptism? It's scary. Not much. If you were to ever run into a sharp Campbellite, a church of Christ, the church of Christ started with Alexander Campbell in the 1830s. If you were to run into a sharp one of them, they could probably take most of you apart about baptism. Because there's verses like this in the Bible. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. Acts 2, 38. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 22. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Galatians 3, 27. For as many of us have been baptized into Jesus Christ have put on Christ. Except a man be born of water. He cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
Look at those verses all sound like baptism is the means to salvation. What do we do? Those are problem texts, and we can answer all those. You say, well, I just ignore them. No, we can't ignore them. We've got to deal with them. We've got to reconcile them. We've got to put them together to make sure that we're holding to the truth of God's Word. Do you know how many verses the Seventh-day Adventists have for keeping the Sabbath? Ten? Twenty? One hundred? Two hundred? Or five hundred? Take on a Seventh-day Adventist sometime. Now your chainsaw to cut his legs off is just to say this. I am a New Testament Christian and the Apostle Paul is the Apostle to the Gentiles. Show me where my Apostle told a Gentile church to keep the seventh day. They're fiddling around in the Old Testament with Ellen Harmon and their dietary laws. You know, most of them are vegetarians because they won't touch any meat because they're all confused because they're still back there in the Old Testament. They write me every single week. And I love to write them back and say, I'm a New Testament Christian. Why don't you come and join me instead of being an Old Testament Jew? Every word of God is important. Every word. Every word. We have eight examples in the New Testament where Jesus or the Apostle Paul argued from a single word. Argued Bible doctrine from a single word. We've already used one in Matthew chapter 22 where Jesus said, "I." he quoted... Exodus 3.14, and said that God told Moses, I am the God of Abraham. That's a present tense verb. How could God be the God of Abraham when Abraham had been dead for several hundred years? Because Abraham was still alive somewhere. He was alive in, guess where he was? Abraham's bosom. He was in Abraham's bosom. He was in heaven. But that whole argument's based on one little two-letter word, I am. Not If God had said, I was the God of Abraham, there'd be no argument. But that's not what the Bible says in Exodus 3.14. Jesus quoted it correctly, and He preached His doctrine from a single word. And that's why we preach the way we do. We do not look for sound bites. We're going to take apart every word. Because man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Later in Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus had the Pharisees on the run, He said to them, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is He? Tell me about what you think about the Messiah. What have you guys learned in seminary? They said he's David's son. So Jesus quotes Psalm 110 and he says, Then why in spirit, means inspired writing, why did David, when he was under inspiration, say, The Lord said unto my Lord. Why did David call the Messiah that was going to come out of his loins his Lord? You know what it says? They could not answer him a single word and they durst not ask Him any more questions from that day forward. Do you know what that whole statement means? Why why David would say that the Lord said to my Lord? Because not only was Jesus Christ the seed of David as His descendant and His Son, Jesus Christ was also the God of David, the divine God of heaven. And that is why David called Him Lord. The Lord said unto my Lord. Jesus was still His Lord, though He was His Son, because Jesus is the God-man. Jesus did all that with one word. What's the one word? Lord. Why did David call Him Lord? That's two. I don't have, the, I don't have time for the others. You've heard them before. Somebody will say, you have to work too hard to prove your point in the Bible. Thank you. You've told us where your heart is. You want to read a comic book and come up with the truth. You don't want to work for it. The Bible says we've got to study. It's laborious work. 
You know, these poor pastors that are all engaged in administrative duties and running summer camps and joy clubs and keeping buses worked, buses running and on the road and all that, Sunday schools and janitors and buildings and all that stuff, they can't ever spend time in the Bible. Matthew chapter 24. I've got two minutes. How fast can you get to Matthew 24? I want to give you a few examples before break. When we come back, it's just going to be pure breakdown of seven categories of problem texts and where the error is made. But I want to give you a few examples to whet your appetite before we take a break here and and have a second assembly. John chapter 24 and verse 13. This is one of the favorite verses of Calvinists for the perseverance of the saints, and it's one of the favorite verses for Arminians that believe you can lose your salvation. Here's the verse. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Matthew 24, 13. Notice, that doesn't say once saved, always saved. It says only if you endure to the end shall you be saved. And there they go. Off goes the Calvinist. That's perseverance of the saints. There goes the Arminian. Unless you endure to the end, you're going to hell. Hell isn't even in here. This is the Lord Jesus Christ warning about the temple being torn down and taken apart stone by stone. This is the destruction of Jerusalem. And those that would endure to the end through the persecution and the distressing signs that were to come before Titus's army, they would be saved. This is a practical deliverance before 70 A.D. That's what Matthew 24, 13 is all about. And there isn't anything else to draw out of Matthew 24, 13. Some men don't endure to the end. There were a whole lot of Corinthians that couldn't even endure, and the Lord killed them for abusing the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This verse doesn't have anything to do with eternal life. It has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. Go ahead and read the first few verses of the chapter. Read verses 30 through 35 and find out what period of time and what event it's talking about. Oh, that verse has been abused. It's been terribly abused. The vast majority of the Christian world thinks Matthew 24, 13 is talking about eternal life. It's not even close. John 1, 12. John 1, 12. I've got a minute and 45 seconds left now. John 1, 12. Does everybody in here that was raised in our church know this verse? But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Did you memorize that verse in Joy Club, Sunday School, Bible School, or somewhere else? John 1.12. This is how you get to heaven. This is how you become a child of God. You've got to invite Jesus into your heart. It doesn't say that, but they say it says that. Says that. You've got to believe on Him in order to become a son of God. You've got to believe on Him in order to be born again. And they quote John 1.12 and they quit. They quit. They quit. Is there a period at the end of John 1.12? No. Why won't they read the whole sentence? Because they're partial in the Word of God. And the Bible speaks about those that are partial in the Word of God. Go read Malachi. uh, It's not Malachi. Yes, it is. It's Malachi chapter 2. You can go read about the priests that were partial in the law of God. They're only reading half the verse. Because the next half of the verse is going to make them heretics for the way they've abused the first half of the verse. The second half of the verse tells us how we were born again, and it tells us when we were born again, before we believed. Because it says, even to them that believe, that's a present tense verb, and the next verse says, which were born, that's a past tense verb. Look at verse 13 of John chapter 1. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
We are born again and become the children of God by God's power. Then we believe. Then we receive Jesus Christ. See, most of the Jews didn't receive Him as the Messiah. Those that did had been born again. Believe is present tense in 12. We're born is past tense in verse 13. But they never read the 13th verse. They make you memorize 12 and they skip verse 13. Galatians 5.4 Galatians 5.4 Those are so simple. John 1.12, they throw it at you. You've got to believe in order to be a child of God. All you have to do is say, read the rest of the sentence. Don't, be, don't cheat the Word of God like that. Don't cheat the Lord like that. Galatians 5.4 Do you believe that you can lose your salvation? Do you believe that you can lose, that you can fall from grace? You should ask me, what phase of salvation and what aspect of grace? This verse is used by many to teach that you can lose eternal life. The Church of Christ, those Campbellites, Alexander Campbell's followers, use this verse to teach that if you're not living right, you can fall and fall from grace and lose eternal life. Look at what it says. Galatians 5.4 Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Oh, and those words have terrified people that have not been taught well. You're fallen from grace. They get into a sin. The pastor will say to them, you're fallen from grace. Oh, and the, and the little, and the guy's shaken because he's lost eternal life and he thinks he's got to get back into it. Do you know what it's like to live that kind of a life? Wondering the moment you die, whether you have eternal life or not, it is terrifying. They rest the scriptures to their own destruction. Right. This, this doesn't have anything to do with eternal life in Galatians 5.4. How do we know that? Well, there's a couple ways. Very simple. You know it from the rest of the Bible, but look at the verse itself. It says that the people that he's talking about in Galatians 5.4 are justified by the law. Can anybody be justified by the law? No. How are they justified by the law? That's what it says. Ye who are justified by the law. In their heads. Ye that think that you're justified by the law, you are fallen from the proper understanding of the doctrine of grace. You say, but you've added words to the Word of God. You bet I have. It's called an ellipsis in the English language. Did you take English? Do you know that there's a figure of speech called when you take out words to make your point more powerful? It's called an ellipsis. Yes, I put a sense on those words. What is Bible preaching? They read in the book and the law of God distinctly, gave the sense, and caused the people to understand the reading. Amen. When it says fallen from grace, it means fallen from the proper knowledge and understanding and doctrine of grace. Paul is telling these Galatians that are saved, their names are in the book of life, they're going to go to heaven when they die, because you have accepted this doctrine of Jewish teachers that you can be justified by the law of Moses, you have fallen from the proper understanding of grace. That is what Galatians 5.4 means, and it has nothing to do with losing eternal life. Revelation 3.20. Revelation 3.20. If John 3.16 is the number one invitational text, what's the second invitational text? Revelation 3.20. You need to go to our website, please, all of you, this afternoon when you get home and see some extra artistic work done by our brother. Sometimes I think he has too much time on his hands and a little too creative inside. But I don't mean too creative. You need to go look at the website this afternoon and see the bearded lady at the door in the garden. You need to do it. Matthew's been at work again. It's pretty good. 
That picture of that Catholic Jesus makes me ill. All you have to do is go down, go to that document, look at it, and see what the book of Revelation says that Jesus looks like. He isn't a bearded lady standing in a garden. He is sitting on a white horse dripping in blood, and there's a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and his eyes are as a flame of fire. They're not the browned eyes of a hound dog that's about to die. Trust the Word of God. We're going to follow the Word of God. Revelation 3.20. This verse is going to be used one million times today across this country. It's going to be used as a salvation sugar text. They're going to offer a piece of candy to people all over this country and all over the world. If you want to go to heaven when you die, all you have to do is invite Jesus into your heart. And you can be sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die. And then once saved, always saved. It doesn't matter where you go to church or how you live as long as you invited Jesus into your heart. Because right now He's standing there knocking. He wants to save you. He wants to take you to heaven. He's done all that He can do. Will you now let Him save you? Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Well, pastor... It sounds like they're right. It sounds like Jesus is standing there and knocking, and He wants to come in. But it doesn't say anything about eternal life, does it? It doesn't say anything about regeneration, does it? Nothing about justification, election, sanctification, adoption, propitiation, redemption. None of those things. Who's it written to? What church? The church of the Laodiceans, verse 14. Who in the church of the Laodiceans? The pastor of the church of the Laodiceans, because it says, Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write. What does it say about this church? Jesus Christ says about this church, is it in the red writing in your Bible? Those of you that have a red letter edition, is this Jesus Christ speaking? Jesus says of this church, this is what you're thinking like and this is the way you're talking about yourselves. You're rich, verse 17, you're increased with goods and you have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to be buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. You are a starving, poverty-stricken church because you think that you can live without me. I stand at the door and knock. If this church will open its doors to me, I will come in and sup with this church and we can have a close relationship of fellowship in this church. This has nothing to do with eternal life. It has everything to do with fellowship that a, that a person and a church can have with Jesus Christ. And yet this verse is ripped, ripped out of the context of Revelation chapter 3 and applied as a sugar piece of candy to people about eternal life. That is not eternal life. That was not addressed to L.A. That was addressed to the Laodiceans. And it was a church. And it was a pastor that was being addressed. You have got haughty in your progress and your prosperity, your carnalness of being increased with goods. They were measuring themselves by gain instead of the godly relationship they should have had with Jesus Christ. This passage has nothing to do with eternal life. It's thrown at us as a problem text, but it's no problem at all. Lord, thank you. Thank you for showing us these things. We love your word. We love the salvation that gives you all the honor and the glory. And we know that if it wasn't by your grace, we wouldn't be saved at all.